Well, on uh, Sunday nights, there's a group of guys that I meet with and really enjoy spending time together. Uh, we're going through a study that examines the core doctrines of the faith, and it does such a good t- job of, of looking at these topics through the, the lens of, of Scripture. And every time I go through it, I, I seem to learn something new that I missed the, the time before. But one of the things that I really like about this particular study is it, is it doesn't stop with just knowing the truth. It talks about what we believe, how we behave, and what we become. And within each section of our study, and each time we get together and visit, there's always a question that it asks, and it's real simple. It says, so what? In other words, now that you know this truth, what difference should it make in your life? That's a great question. I think if we take a moment and and step back and look at Peter's letter as a whole, you'll see that he's basically doing the very same thing. He starts by describing what it is we are to believe. He told us that God has given us everything that we need to live a godly life that is pleasing to the Lord. He told us how God has given the promises that we need to understand that, that reveal His plan for the world and His purpose in our lives. Knowing this, Peter said, be diligent in your faith. Be set apart as God's people. Continue to learn, but make sure that your knowledge leads to good choices. And your good choices to good character. And your good character to good relationships, both with God and with one another. Be reminded. Be stirred up. And don't be distracted. Peter then points to the distraction that his reader encountered. A deception in the early church that is alive and well in the church today. It is the worldly mindset that lives with the focus on the here and now with no anticipation for Christ's return in the future. In fact, there's even doubt being stirred up in this deception as we've talked about that Christ will even return at all. The logic suggests that everything is continued just as it was from the beginning. There's no reason to believe that that's ever going to change. Why worry about the future, these false teachers proclaim, when you can enjoy the pleasures of today. These camouflaged Christians masquerade with a form of godliness, the Scripture tells us, going through the routine of religious ritual to ease their conscience. But inside their heart, they have never surrendered their life to God's rightful authority. As Peter says it, they have denied the master who bought them. In other words, they live a self-satisfying life on their terms. God is important only as much as it helps them in their selfish decisions. Those who lead this life boast in a freedom of choice, including the freedom to choose what truths to accept and those To reject. There's no truth that is more offensive to those who are caught in deception than the truth of eternal judgment. And so they mock the idea of Christ's return to judge sin by making light of something 
they should be taking very seriously. They live life above what they consider archaic, now irrelevant, religious ideals that no longer apply to the more enlightened age of Christian faith and practice. Instead of repenting of sin, they justify sin. Instead of submitting to God's commands, they rise above them. They purposefully ignore the promise of God that brings conviction. And they entice young, weak, struggling Christians to join in their playful compromise. Peter reminds his reader, don't be distracted. Wake up and live your life with the end in mind. And know that the justice of God requires the judgment of God. And that window of repentance that his patience allows is in fact closing. And on that day, the day of his judgment, unlike any day in all of human history, the earth will be burned by fire and everything stained by sin will be destroyed. We read this, and, and, and we need to be reminded that, that this is not new information to the reader of Peter's letter. Peter is simply echoing what they have already been told and what has been spoken by people like the, the prophet Micah, by Isaiah, by the apostle Paul, by Jude, and even by Jesus himself. That's why Peter says in the beginning of his letter, you already know these things to be true. I'm just reminding you. But the question is, in knowing this truth, so what? What difference should knowing this truth make in your life? In fact, verse 11 of our passage this morning says it this way. Since this is true, what sort of people ought you to be? Peter will then go on to to answer that question, and that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. I'm really looking forward to this. Let's pray together. God, I, I am excited. I'm excited about the way your truth reveals things that changes our lives, the way your truth opens our eyes to not only see what is true, but to identify what is false, to instill in us a, a hope and a promise of the future that we have in you. To be reminded of your grace and mercy and love and forgiveness. To be in, encouraged in that, to live a life worthy of our calling. Father, may your words, inspired by your Spirit, penetrate our hearts this morning. May we, myself included, and each and every one of us not leave today the same person that we came in, that we would grow in our knowledge of you and the grace of our salvation. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, if you're not already there, turn to Second Peter chapter 3, verse 11, and we'll pick up where we left off last time. If you would, just uh, follow along with me if, as I read in, in verse 11 of chapter 3. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning 
and the elements will melt with intense heat. Now, this is the third time in just five verses that Peter has made a point to emphasize the day of judgment. When the wrath of God destroys everything stained by sin with fire. This is a promise. A promise of unprecedented cosmic destruction. The complete and final judgment of Christ over all creation. And I want you to know that those reading this letter are not surprised by this information. As I mentioned earlier, Peter's writing to remind them of things that they already know to be true. For example, I mentioned the prophet Micah. Let me tell you what he said about God's judgment upon the earth when he writes in chapter 1, verse 3. For behold, the Lord is coming forth from his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will be split, like wax from the fire, like water poured down a steep place. Isaiah was another one of the prophets who spoke of what would happen in the heavens, and he writes in chapter 34, verse 4, And all the host of heaven will wear away, and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll, and all their hosts will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine. And even David, in, in his very first psalm, speaks of the judgment of the unrighteous when he says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The point is, this is not new information. God made known from the very beginning that in the end, the earth, the heavens above the earth, and those who inhabit the earth will be judged by the righteous right hand of God. And then in verse 12 of our passage, Peter says, Look for and hasten the coming of this day. In other words, know that it is coming. Don't be carried away by those who turned a blind eye to this promise. But anticipate what God said would happen, even hastening the day. Now, I want to point out a couple of things that I think are important here as we Consider what Peter is telling us. First of all, Peter tells us to anticipate the day of judgment, but he does not say, look forward to that day. As I mentioned last week, God's people are not destined for God's wrath. And so we're protected for the condemning judgment of this day. But there are those that we live with, those that we work with, even those that we love who do not have this same protection because they have not found the refuge of his salvation through faith in Christ alone. They, they have not surrendered to the master who bought them. It's for this reason that we anticipate the day of judgment, but it's not something that we look forward to. Which brings me to the second point. Although there are a variety of opinions on this matter, I don't believe what Peter is telling us here when he tells us to hasten today that, that in any way he's suggesting that the actions of mankind are able to adjust God's timetable for his return. 
you may remember what Jesus told his disciples when he says, but of that day and hour, speaking of the day of Christ's return, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. This tells me that the day, even the hour, has been set, established by God and known only to him. And so the question is, as we read Peter's letter, what does he mean by hasten the day? Let me suggest to you that what Peter is describing here is not a view from God's perspective, for he knows the day. But instead, it is a view from our perspective, and and here's how. If we believe in God's promise that the day has been set for final judgment... And the fact that it hasn't happened yet is because he's patient. What does that say about the window of opportunity for repentance? It's closing, isn't it? Now, I don't know the day of his return. No one does. The scripture makes that clear. But what I do know is today is one day closer than yesterday was. And so let me ask you this. When do you perceive time to move faster? When you have the attitude that says, this is taking forever. (laughs) I don't think he's ever going to come. Or when you have the attitude that says, all I know is that the clock is ticking. And we are literally running out of time. From our perspective, time moves faster when we understand that the clock is ticking doesn't it? And not only that, doesn't time just drag when you're bored and and there's nothing to do? And doesn't time just fly by when you're doing something that that you're busy with and you know that it's really important? That's a fact that we live with in our world today. I think what Peter is saying here is, people of God, get busy. You know what is coming. You of all people should have an awareness of the closing window of opportunity. And when we're looking for that day, time moves quickly. It hastens. This awareness is is the motivation behind verse 11. When Peter says, knowing this, we ought to be people of holy conduct and godliness. People who are set apart and not carried away. People who are alert and not lulled to sleep. Followers of Christ who are following the Spirit and not following the desires of the flesh. If I could, let let me pause here and give you what I believe to be at least three practical applications of what this attitude looks like in our life. Our expectation of this day should be exhibited And how we encourage each other, how we evangelize the lost, and how we avoid the scoffer. Paul talks about the importance of encouraging each other even more as that day draws near. He tells the Thessalonians, he says, For God has not destined us for wrath, we talked about that, but for attaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, we live together in Him. Therefore, or to put it in the vernacular of the study that we've been going through, so what? Well, here's the what. 
encourage one another and build up one another just as you are also doing. The writer of Hebrews echoes essentially the same thing when he says, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own gathering together is the habit of some. But let us encourage one another. All the more as you see the day drawing near. That day is the day we've been talking about. The day of the Lord. Until that day, we know that we live in a sin-cursed world. And there is not a person in this room who is immune from the temptation and distraction of this place. Every one of us is prone to wander. And left to ourselves, we grow weary and lose heart in doing good. I was talking to a friend this week as we visited about the the tendency we all have to, to look at those around us who are living the high life and saying to ourselves, I kind of want some of that. It's easy to be carried away and deceived into believing that a life lived without sacrifice is the good life. Somehow we're missing out when we walk away from the old neighborhood, choosing instead to walk in a manner worthy of His calling. We all struggle with this doubt at different times in our life. And so we need to be consistent in our efforts to encourage one another even more as the day draws near. We need to build each other up, love one another, pray for one another, be at peace with one another, forgive one another, give preference to one another. Because the fact is, we're spending eternity with one another, right? And so until that day, when we stand His presence, we need to stand together encouraging each other to stay the course, to live in holiness, anticipating the promise of His return. Be gentle. Be full of grace, knowing that no one has arrived until He arrives. Amen? But remember, it's not all about us. There is a window of opportunity That is closing. And there are those who will not endure the wrath of God. That's why Peter says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. God does not want anyone to perish. We learned that last week. So neither should we. We should encourage each other. But we should also evangelize the lost. We should share the hope that is in us. After all, the the whole purpose of holiness is not about earning favor with God. That was accomplished at the moment we put our trust in Christ. The motivation for a godly life in view of God's judgment is the opportunity that it creates to share the hope that is within us. We want people to see our good works and to glorify our Father who is in heaven. Any sacrifice we make is motivated by the desire 
to point others to Christ. We don't want to blend in. We don't want to blend in. Because living a godly life in a sin-cursed world should look different. It should be set apart. And just like the, the people of God in the Old Testament, when you look at Israel, you see very clearly God set them apart for a purpose. Well, Church of Jesus Christ, the same is true for you and I. Paul tells the Corinthians, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Judgment is coming. The window of repentance is is closing and until that day our life should be set apart for the purpose of sharing the hope that is within us living out the joy of our salvation and calling others to be found in him who knew no sin so that they too might become the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ when we anticipate his coming we encourage each other We evangelize the lost. But finally, the scripture also tells us we avoid the scoffer. Paul's letter to Timothy. He describes the last days, which I believe we're in, including the time from Christ until the time he returns. Those are the last days. And what Paul says to Timothy is this. He says, but realize this, that in the last days, these are the days you live in. Difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. And listen to this, avoid such men as these avoid them stay away no missionary dating allowed bad company corrupts good morals and to arrogantly assume that you're above any temptation to compromise sets you up for failure just read the headlines this week right now i don't know what's true or false in the media these days but what i do know is that there's a long history of high-profile people who are now living in disgrace because they were unwilling to distance themselves from immorality and corruption. They became guilty by association. Whatever good reputation they had, they lost. But what's more destructive than destroying your own reputation is what the impact of our decisions make on the reputation of God. Who we are as his child says something, as it should, about our Father. It's for that reason we need to avoid any close connection with those who openly deny the rule of Christ in their lives by living a life of sinful pleasure. These are not people who are seeking the truth. These are not those that really want to know what it means to to be a follower of Christ. They 
are the ones that are in rebellion, who make light of the way of righteousness because they're too busy being caught up in the ways of the world. By all means, call the scoffer to repentance, but do not call them to be your friend. Avoid such men as these. Encourage one another. Evangelize the lost. Avoid the scoffer. Anticipating Christ's return should make a difference in our conduct. But it should also make a difference in our conscience. Look at verse 13. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heaven and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, in regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation. We're going to pause there and and we'll pick up from there next week. But what I want us to focus on here is that that when we anticipate the promise of, of God's judgment, we know that we are looking forward to the promise of redemption. This day of redemption is the day that we are looking forward to. When literally he brings beauty from ashes, from those things that are destroyed by the presence of sin. And so with that in mind, I want to ask you to stop here for just a second and use your sanctified imagination. I want you to consider for just a little bit what it would be like for to go for just one year. Okay? Let's just make it easy. One year. And in that year, there is no sickness. In that year, there's no sadness, not even a tear. In that year, there is no death. Can you imagine that? Just one year. If that's too hard, try six months. All right? Six months. I know for me it, it's hard to grasp. But can you imagine what it would be like if it never happened again? That's the promise of God. In Revelation chapter 21, when the new heaven and new earth replace what has been destroyed, it will usher in a time where God says that there will be no more tears, no more sickness, no more disease, no more death. Not for six months, not for a year, but for all eternity. Can you wrap your minds around that one? There will be no need for the sun or the moon, Scripture tells us, because the glory of God will give us light. Because here's the most exciting part. Peter describes it in verse 12 when he says, This is the place where righteousness dwells. This is too good to miss, so turn to Revelation chapter 21, and I want us to look at this together. Revelation chapter 21, John is going to unpack that small statement that Peter makes in his letter. Let's see what he has in mind. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. The final judgment has taken place, and now watch what happens. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And we know why now. And there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, 
Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. And they shall no longer, there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write these words because they're faithful and true. That's the promise. I remember thinking as a young Christian how cool this is going to be because it's going to be like the Garden of Eden restored, right? That wonderful place that God created for for Adam and Eve now made available to all mankind. But the fact of the matter is is that what John describes in Revelation 21 far exceeds the Garden of Eden or anything else that man has ever even conceived to be possible. Here's why. Just think about this. Satan was present in the Garden of Eden. He will not be present in the new heaven and the new earth. He tempted us with sin. There will be no sin or even the possibility of sin in the new heaven and the new earth. And not only that, in Genesis, it tells us that God would pass through the garden in the cool of the evening. In the new heaven and the new earth, God is not passing through. It is where he dwells. This is far greater than we could ever ask or imagine. I feel certain there will be a time continually filled with wonder and praise for he who set us apart for that purpose. Whatever sacrifice we made on earth will pale in comparison to the glory to be revealed on that day. It's like the song says, right? I can only imagine. This makes me think of those, those special times that I've had with my family. And one of the things that easily comes to mind to me is what I've shared with you before, and that's the trip that I had with Graham this summer. Backpacking trip with Larry and Bruce and a group of dads and their sons. <laughs> it's one of the most beautiful places in nature that I've been. And and although I couldn't take any credit for any of it, it was not unusual several times during that trip for Graham to look at me and say, Dad, this is awesome. Thank you so much. I love you, Dad. I think that's what we're going to be saying when our faith becomes sight. Part of our worship will be the experience of what he's promised. And we're going to say, thank you, Father. This is awesome. I love you. Knowing this, Peter says, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of the Lord to be salvation. This idea of being found by him implies the question, what will God see when he returns to bring you home? How will he find you? And he begins by saying, be diligent to be found in peace. I believe that peace has a broad range of ideas. And one of those meanings is the peace that we have 
from the assurance of our salvation. When you understand who you are in Christ and that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, you have no concern or worry about the potential of his rejection. Because Jesus himself said this. He said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Knowing this, there is nothing that breaks my heart more than to hear those, especially those who profess to be Christians, say out loud, I hope I get to heaven. I hope I've been good enough for God to to let me in. You see, that, under, that, that statement finds its source in a deep misunderstanding of the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice for sin on the cross. Because when you believe that his death on your behalf satisfied once and for all the problem of sin's curse, you have a tremendous peace in the anticipation of his return. You may not be perfect, and no one is, but the eyes of God, He sees you through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in His eyes, you are spotless and blameless and pure. If if there's any absence of that peace in your life as a child of God, you're not thinking rightly about God and His promise of salvation. And more often than not, we lose this peaceful assurance when God's acceptance of me has anything to do with with my performance. But that's not how it works. We're not holding on to Him. He is holding on to us. I can be found by Him in peace when I realize that my salvation does not depend on my performance, but it rests completely on the sufficiency of His sacrifice for the forgiveness of my sins. That understanding should motivate a life of grateful obedience. Which leads to another aspect of of peace that we should be found in. It's the the peace that comes from having a clear conscience. Remember the point that we made last week, that, that that call of repentance is meant to be heard by believers as well. In fact, we should be the first to recognize the grace of God and turn from the sin that so easily entangles us in in order to live a life increasingly devoted to Him. We all make mistakes. But we, of all people, should be well acquainted with this heart of repentance, including the desire to, to turn from sin and to walk in a manner worthy of His calling. As Paul told us, as we look through Philippians, last spring, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching for what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's what we're waiting for. That's what it means to be found in Him, by Him, in peace with a clear conscience. Peace from the security of our salvation, peace from a clear conscience. And I think God also desires us to be found by Him in peace with one another. Remember, 
He's coming to take us to a place where we're going to spend eternity with each other. I think now would be a good time to figure out how to live with one another despite our many differences. I promise you, there will be things in heaven that we will look at as having separated us on earth and they will not matter anymore. I promise. Be diligent to be at peace with all men. Be found by him as one who does not stir up strife, but one who promotes peace. Peter encourages us to to be found by him in peace, but he also tells us to be spotless and blameless. The words here are the exact opposite of the words he used to describe the false teachers when he said of them, they are stains and blemishes. I believe the picture that immediately comes to mind for the readers of, of Peter's letter is the image of the sacrificial system. When God instructed his people to present their sacrifice without stain or blemish. In other words, don't make a sacrifice of something that you really don't want anyway. Don't go pick out the lame and diseased and and give that to God. That's not a worthy sacrifice. God deserves your very best. And so go look through your flock and, and find... The perfect, perfect one. And that's what you need to give to God. Well, in the same way, I think that's how we should present ourselves. Is living in holy sacrifices acceptable to God. We must be diligent to avoid the stain of compromise. The blemish of spiritual laziness. The the blot of hard-heartedness. Present yourself as they did the animal sacrifice. Make it the very best you have to offer. Not because you're earning his favor, but because you are motivated to give your very best to the one who gave his life for the forgiveness of your sins. His love should motivate our obedience. Give him your very best. Perhaps what Peter says at the end puts it all into perspective. He says... Regard the patience of the Lord to be salvation. You know, I I read that statement this week, and for the first time I realized he waited long enough for me. He waited long enough for me. Ever thought about that? He waited long enough for you. He could have come the day before your decision, but he didn't. In loving patience, he waited long enough for you to come to repentance and believe. And if you're here this morning and you still have not put your faith in Christ, at least for now, he's still waiting. He's an omniscient God who knows all things to come, including those he has called to salvation. And when he determines the time is right, known only to him and in his infinite wisdom, in a way that protects his justice and unfailing love, the judgment of sin will be final And the plan of redemption will be complete. Until that day, and in view of that day, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And regard the patience of the Lord to be salvation as you live out that gift of salvation. What sort of people ought we to be? People who encourage each other towards love and good deeds. 
People who are eager to share the hope that is within us. People who are set apart and unwilling to become entangled in the compromising ways of the world. That's the sort of people that we ought to be. People who live in peace in the promise of God's salvation. Those who live in the peace of a clear conscience and peace with one another. In view of God's gift of grace, we should be people who give our very best. A holy and living sacrifice, acceptable to God. A life lived in worship of our blessed Redeemer. That's the sort of people we ought to be. Let's be those people for the praise and glory of our God. Amen? Let's pray. God, we want to be those people. We want to be those people. So will you, in grace and mercy, help the things that you have made so clear through the revelation of your word to change the way we view all of life, that it would give us a sense of urgency, knowing that the window of opportunity for repentance is closing. And time is running short, literally. May we live in godliness and holiness. May we share the hope that is within us. May we be different, set apart. But we recognize together, Father, as a church, that that's hard in a sin-cursed world filled with distractions. So may we encourage each other. May we love each other. May we be at peace with one another. Father, may we have the assurance of our salvation in you because of your promises. May we know that you see us as spotless and blameless. And so may we be diligent to give you our very best. May we recognize your patience. (laughs) That you waited long enough for us to believe. May that motivate us to live a life worthy of our calling. We pray this in your name. Amen.